0: The History Channel Original Podcast.
1: History this week, February 26th, 1924. I'm Sally Helm. As they enter the courtroom in Munich, the audience has to submit to a search to make sure they're not smuggling in any weapons. A reporter writes the next day, their hair, hats, purses, muffs, and even stockings were inspected for daggers, hand grenades, and bombs, and also for hat pins, exceeding the limit allowed by the authorities. Those authorities are not taking any chances. The defendants in this trial are charged with an attempted coup, in German, a putsch, They tried to overthrow the government of the Weimar Republic, and almost succeeded. There have been rumors that their supporters might try to storm the courtroom, free the defendants, and finish what they started. When the audience finally makes it through security, they enter a big, drafty room. It wasn't designed as a courtroom. This building had been a school for soldiers, and this room was their dining hall. The school was shut down recently because the majority of the cadets had supported the attempted coup, marched against the government, alongside the defendants, who now enter this former dining hall to face a charge of high treason. The first defendant is a general in civilian clothes, a blue suit. The second follows a few steps behind, carrying a briefcase. He isn't an imposing figure. One observer writes that he looked, quote, for all the world like a traveling salesman for a clothing firm. When the judge enters a few minutes later and reads this man's name into the record, he identifies him as a Munich writer named Adolf Hitler. Today, Hitler's first attempt to seize power. How did his 1923 coup fail? And why would Hitler later say that this failure was perhaps the greatest good fortune of my life?
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: Adolf Hitler will stage his 1923 coup in the city of Munich. He'd moved there in 1913 from Austria as a broke artist selling postcards for money. He left home because he was dodging the Austrian draft. And also, he'd come to hate the multicultural, multilingual Austrian empire. He adopted the city of Munich as his true home. When World War I breaks out in 1914, soon after his big move, the 25-year-old Hitler is suddenly eager to enlist.
3: He loves the idea of getting into the German army. He wanted to be fully German, and this was one more chance to prove what a German he was.
1: That's longtime journalist Peter Rossrange, author of several books on Hitler. He told us, the young Hitler fights in the Bavarian army. Munich is the state capital of Bavaria. And in October of 1918, a mustard gas attack leaves him temporarily blind. He's in the hospital, recovering, when he hears the news of Germany's surrender.
3: He was devastated, according to his own account, by the news, you know, after four years, all was lost.
1: And soon, all was chaos in Germany. The economy tanks, inflation skyrockets, people can't trust that money will have value
3: tomorrow. Sometimes people would prefer to barter food for things, for instance, two eggs for very expensive opera tickets. Then food itself becomes scarce. There was starvation, there were hunger riots. In the
1: midst of it all, Germany establishes its first democracy, the Weimar Republic. But that only creates more political instability. People resent the government in the capital city of Berlin. They're mad that Germany lost the war and had to pay punishing reparations. And all this tension is especially evident in Bavaria. It had always been a conservative state.
3: And now… Bavaria became a kind of a safe haven for right-wing forces and they continued to gather there uh, where a very nationalistic mood was developing. It was
1: German nationalism that had driven Adolf Hitler into the army. And now, even though the war is over, the army is where he wants to stay.
3: And why did he want to do that? Because he had no other place to sleep or eat. Being a soldier was the only real job that Hitler had ever had.
1: He's assigned a job as an army educator and informant. He's supposed to teach soldiers the principles of nationalism and sniff out any Marxist sympathizers in the ranks. Hitler also begins crystallizing his own political views at the time, influenced by the right-wing politics in Munich and by anti-communist and anti-Semitic periodicals and books.
3: And so he thought he had figured out why communism was bad, why mixing races was bad, and he regarded Jews as a separate race from Germans, and even the French, for that matter, and had developed very strong ideas about these things, not very sophisticated, but he could declaim on them
1: He gets the chance to do that in his role as an army educator. He lectures to a group of soldiers. And it's at this point that he discovers his greatest
3: skill. Hitler kind of claims that that was the moment that he realized, quote, I could speak.
1: He'd never been a great soldier, but he turns out to be a powerful orator. His students give him high marks. One writes in his course review, Herr Hitler is, if I may say so, a born popular speaker. That skill will come to define the next months and years of Hitler's life. Soon after he gives those lectures, in September of 1919, something happens to set him on a new path.
3: And it was the turning point in him going into politics, and you know, it was a critical moment in history for all of us.
1: It happens at a shabby-looking pub in Munich. Hitler has been sent there as an army spy. He's supposed to observe a small meeting held by a fledgling right-wing political group called the German Workers' Party. And near the end of the meeting, one of the members starts making a speech about how Bavaria should separate from Germany. According to his telling, Hitler springs into action.
3: Hitler stands up and makes the opposite argument. He said, not only should Bavaria stay with Germany and Russia, but also annex Austria. Austria should be part of greater Germany. Hitler was a great believer in greater Germany. And um, in his own telling, he talked this guy into the floor and sort of chased him out of the meeting, quote, like a wet poodle, unquote. So this was the alleged moment of birth of Hitler's political career. — Hitler surely
1: manipulates this story over the years as he hones his own political mythology. But most historians agree on what happens next.
3: The head of the party said, hey, that guy can talk, and sent him a postcard a few days later inviting him to join the party, which he did.
1: Within just a few months, the party realizes his strength. He's drawing large crowds, riling them up with his speeches. He'd start slow and simple.
3: Which had the effect generally of quieting the crowd down. And his speaking style then would rise to a crescendo and he would become very physical and waving his arms and shaping his words with his hands. And This was something that folks were not necessarily used to in a uh, political speaker.
1: Hitler would hammer on topics that, for a growing number of Munichers, hit home.
3: German nationalism, national greatness, the inflation problem, the horrible guys in Berlin who were running the country into the ground the guys who many Germans
1: blamed for their loss in World War I. This appealed in particular to working-class Germans, especially those who had been soldiers.
3: And they felt that Hitler was a person who could get the country back on the right track and who was promoting their point of view.
1: In his speeches, Hitler finds a scapegoat. He singles out Jewish people as a, quote, virus infecting the country. At the time, anti Semitism was not uncommon in Germany. But
3: Hitler's way of thinking was much sharper, much more aggressive, encouraging violence among the members and turning it into what we came to know as the Nazi Party.
1: It wasn't just Munich's working classes who loved Hitler's speeches. He also made friends among the Munich elite. One of them helped him start a newspaper that would become a major propaganda outlet for the Nazis. And in the summer of 1921, Hitler declares himself the sole leader of his party. Over the next two years, the Nazi presence in Munich continues to grow. Membership skyrockets from 20,000 to 55,000 in 1923 alone. But in the larger world of German politics...
3: The Nazis were just a blip. The communists alone had 300,000 members in Germany and the Social Democrats had 2 million.
1: Hitler is undeterred. In fact, in 1923, he decides it is time for the Nazi Party — and him — to seize control of Munich and then of the German capital, Berlin. The year before, Mussolini had staged his famous March on Rome and taken over the Italian government. This galvanizes Hitler.
3: He wanted to take over the government of Bavaria, the state government, and then very shortly thereafter stage, quote, a march on Berlin, just like Mussolini's march on Rome.
1: He's planning a coup. In German, a putsch. And in November of 1923, he sees his moment. German society is still in turmoil. Inflation has continued to soar. And the General State Commissioner of Bavaria announces that he is going to hold a meeting at a big beer hall in Munich. He's a conservative politician named Gustav von Kahr. And with him at the meeting will be two other powerful Bavarians, General Otto von Loso, who controls the German military in Bavaria, and Colonel Hans Ritter von Seisser, head of the Bavarian State Police. If Hitler wants to take over Berlin, he'll need their support. Luckily for him, they all hate the Weimar Republic and have talked about overthrowing it
3: themselves. Unluckily for him, they considered him a crazy extremist.
1: And they want nothing to do with Hitler's putsch. But he is persistent. He decides he's just gonna show up at the beer hall gathering, see if he can persuade the three men to view things his way with the help of a few hundred of his armed supporters. The night of the gathering is dark and cold. It's about to snow. Some 3,000 people have squeezed into the beer hall to hear Carr speak. Politicians, military leaders, the press. Waitresses are carrying beer steins from place to place. Some of the men are smoking cigars and eating ox steaks. Meanwhile, outside the beer hall are Hitler's armed men. Around 8.30 p.m., not long after the event begins, Hitler himself shows up in a bright red Mercedes.
3: Hitler is dressed, some people say he was dressed like a waiter, and nobody pays hardly any attention to him at all.
1: Finally, a little late, Gustav Carr gets up to begin his speech. Not long after, Hitler bursts through the doors. He elbows his way through the crowd towards the podium.
3: Hitler shouts for the crowd to quiet down and absolutely nothing happens. Nobody pays a bit of attention to it. So, he jumps on a chair, and he pulls out his pistol and fires it into the ceiling, and that quiets everybody down. And that's when he makes his fateful announcement that the national revolution has begun.
1: It has begun, in his mind, with this Beer Hall putsch. He has tried to take a crowd of 3,000 people hostage, but they're not having it. No one knows who he is really, and he seems insane.
3: And so he is rejected out of hand by most of the people in the room.
1: They jeer at him, call him names. Hitler again calls for silence. He warns the crowd. The hall is surrounded by 600
3: heavily armed men which is a wild exaggeration, we believe, but the folks in the beer hall didn't know that. And at this moment, the head of Hitler's small storm brigade drags a heavy machine gun into the entrance of the beer hall, which does indeed indicate that they mean business and everybody freezes.
1: By this point, Hitler is riled
3: up. He looks like a guy who may be a little bit crazy, who may be foaming at the mouth,
1: He takes Carr, Loso, and Sicer into a side room guarded by armed men. There, he tries to convince them to join his revolution. He promises them high positions in his new government. He says they'll be serving a great nationalistic cause.
3: And he gets carried away with this at one point and lets them know that he has more bullets in his pistol. And if worse comes to worse, he will shoot them and maybe even shoot himself this was the first time in this interesting event when Hitler talks about shooting himself. It's not the last time.
1: But despite these threats, the three leaders aren't buying it. Hitler's starting to get antsy. He's anxiously awaiting the arrival of a secret weapon. But the guy is late. So Hitler decides to do what he does best, stir up the crowd.
3: He knows he doesn't have the crowd on his side yet. So Hitler goes out and begins making a speech, basically preaching his nationalistic message. One eyewitness says it was like turning a glove inside out. I don't know about loving him, but they certainly came to support him very strongly. It's
1: exactly what he'd hoped for. The same people who had essentially booed Hitler are now cheering him on. Hitler walks back into the room where the three men are being held.
3: Now Hitler's able to say to them, you're not just with me, you're with this crowd. You're with the people.
1: And then, like clockwork, his secret weapon finally arrives. In the form of a famed German general, Erich Ludendorff. Ludendorff was a World War I hero, a tall, old-school officer.
3: When he walked into the beer hall that night, people started standing ramrod straight and saying, attention, and acting as though he were the commander of the German armed forces, which he was not. But that's how revered he was in Germany at that time.
1: Ludendorff enters the side room and addresses these three captive leaders. He urges them to join the cause. He zeroes in on one in particular.
3: He turned to Losso, who was a general like him, and said, Losso, let's do it.
1: Lusso is now facing his one-time superior.
3: He said, what a good German officer is supposed to say to a superior officer, your excellency's wish is my command, and they shook hands.
1: The other men protest for a little while, then finally relent, and Hitler leads them all back into the beer hall.
3: And he stages this moment of sentimental togetherness in which he goes and shakes each man's hand individually with almost tears in his eyes. And then they all sing together, 3,000 people, what amounts to the national anthem, which is called the Song of Germany, and has that famous opening line, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles.
1: Then Hitler lets the crowd go, though they're questioned at the door, and some who seem disloyal are detained. The three leaders, Carr, Loso, and Seisser, he keeps at the beer hall. Meanwhile, Hitler's men are out in Munich, attempting to take over barracks and police stations, declaring the new government, and destroying Jewish stores and homes along the way. Everything seems to be going as they'd planned, until early in the morning when Hitler makes a big mistake. He leaves the beer hall to check how things are going with his putsch around Munich, and he puts Ludendorff in charge of the three men. They gradually ingratiate themselves with the general and say, hey, couldn't you let us
3: go? They give him their words of honor as officers that they are still part of the plot.
1: Ludendorff believes them.
3: A word of honor in Germany and and all of Europe in those days was considered a very serious business.
1: In this case, though, it proves flimsy. As soon as the three men are free, they publicly refute their alliance with Hitler and call in military backup.
3: And this is where it begins to unravel.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hitler comes back to
1: the beer hall to find the men gone. He's furious. Within the next few hours, it becomes clear that his plan is collapsing. But he decides to try one more thing. He calls for a march. He wants to show that he has the public on his side. More than 2,000 people show up. But halfway through their route, they clash with Bavarian
3: police. And total chaos breaks out. Four policemen were killed, but 13 of Hitler's men and one bystander are killed. Hitler himself missed being shot by only two feet. The man next to him, with whom he was linked arm in arm, got a bullet in the chest and died immediately. Hitler fell and got a dislocated shoulder.
1: He slinks away and jumps into a getaway car. He's driving towards the Austrian border when his car breaks down, and he walks to a friend's villa nearby friend's wife, Helena, answers the door, and hides him in the attic.
3: Within two days, the Bavarian police figured out where Hitler had gone, and they went down and surrounded this villa on this lake. Hitler saw the police out there. He reached for his pistol yet again, and according to Helena, he had it up to his head, up to his temple, and was about to kill himself when she walked into the room and snatched it out of his hand and threw it into a flour barrel. Yet another one of those incredible moments when history might have been spared a man named Adolf Hitler had it turned out differently.
1: Instead, Hitler is taken to prison. He's despondent. He goes on a hunger strike. Outside the prison walls, his power is waning. Importantly, the Nazi party's daily newspaper is banned. But as Hitler's trial approaches, he starts to realize this could be an opportunity.
3: Hitler rightly sees the trial as a grandstand for politics and a way of trying to turn the tables on the established political order, which is trying to put him in prison for a very long time.
1: Hitler's right that this is a chance to grandstand. As the trial approaches, Munichers are watching. On the opening day, in late February 1924, every seat in the courtroom is taken, and some in the crowd support the coup. There are 10 defendants, including Ludendorff, who's widely seen as the ringleader. But people have also heard about this other conspirator.
3: Everybody is kind of waiting to see this guy, Hitler, who had done this wild and crazy and dangerous and almost possibly successful thing. So it was a very dramatic scene. People knew that something dramatic was going to happen.
1: Ludendorff enters the room first, but Adolf Hitler is right behind him.
3: Hitler enters the courtroom, you know, with his eyes darting here and there, described as being like a hungry animal, and all eyes are on him. He's kind of a star.
1: The judge in this trial is a known right-wing sympathizer named George Neidhart. He calls things to order and reportedly smiles at the defendants. Then he asks the prosecution to read the indictment. It's around 40 pages long.
3: Huge amount of detail. And the charge culminated when the prosecutor, a man named Stenglein, said, for all the other actors and for all the other events, the truth of the matter is Hitler was the soul of the enterprise.
1: A damning charge. But it also makes Hitler a figure of central importance. And in that way, it's music to his ears. The court breaks for lunch. And then the judge calls Hitler to the stand. It's time for his opening statement.
3: So Hitler's moment has come. The courtroom was full, and he gets up to rebut the charge. He makes what, by some accounts, was a four-hour speech.
1: He starts by talking about his youth in Austria, how, at 16, he had to start earning his own bread.
3: Which is not true, but it made a good story. And he gets away with non-stop talk, a flood of words. He talks about his time as a
1: loyal German soldier. He rails against the communists, the social democratic government, and he doesn't hold back on the racism.
3: Right in the first couple of minutes, Hitler comes right out and says, I went to Vienna as a world citizen, open-minded world citizen, and I left as a convinced anti-Semite. He just comes right out and says it.
1: And he uses the opportunity to make a case for himself as the leader Germany needs.
3: Hitler paints the picture of himself as a guy with nothing but Germany's purest and best interests at heart from a nationalist point of view to prevent Germany's downfall, which he constantly harps on.
1: He also manages to turn the tables on the three men who he feels betrayed him, Commissioner Carr, General Loso, and Colonel Seisser.
3: He successfully raises a number of questions about whether or not they were intending to do exactly the same thing, and that he simply got one step ahead of them.
1: He claims they would have done it anyway. The marathon speech turns the courtroom into a theater. People are clapping and laughing on cue. One reporter calls it a dazzling performance. Hitler is using the same tricks that have galvanized working-class Munichers for years. But now his audience is the world.
3: It made a very big first impression, and it got the headlines to go with it, which is exactly what he wanted. From
1: then on, the trial turns into something of an Adolf Hitler showcase. He even gets the chance to question some of the prosecution's witnesses, which was legal, though not standard practice. When he questions General Oso, things get heated. They call each other names. The judge tries to calm things down, but no dice.
3: And finally, Hitler says, the only one here who has broken his word of honor is the lieutenant general himself. And accusing a general of the army of having broken his word of honor was the kind of thing that used to lead to duels or worse. Hitler does apologize, but Loso walks out. And declares that he is not coming back. So it can also once again be said Hitler got the upper hand.
1: The trial lasts 24 days. On the day the judge announces his verdict...
3: Everybody wants to be in the court. The court is overcrowded. A lot of women have brought flowers and gifts. The judge comes in, and Hitler is indeed convicted of treason. But the judge gives him the lightest possible sentence under the law.
1: Five years, with the possibility of parole in six months.
3: Both those things are sort of unheard of. Uh, He could have gotten life. This was high treason he was convicted of. So he got a wrist-slap sentence.
1: When the crowd in the courtroom
3: hears the verdict...
1: Everybody cheers. Hitler is a hero. There are also cheers outside the courtroom.
3: It's still freezing cold, but Hitler finds a window that can be opened, and he opens it and waves to the crowds. He had the Munichers on his side by this time, if there were any doubters. It's a preview of what we're going to see eight years later.
1: When Hitler assumes power. It wasn't the beer hall putsch that allowed him to do that, but the trial is a springboard for Hitler, just as he'd hoped it would be. He goes from an obscure right wing extremist in Munich to a household name in Germany. He even makes headlines worldwide.
3: The newspapers went wild immediately. Uh, Couldn't print newspapers fast enough.
1: In prison, he writes his autobiographical manifesto, Mein Kampf, and lays out his ultra-nationalistic plans for Germany, including the expulsion of Jews from any part of public life. That vision, of course, later becomes even more violent as it shifts from expulsion to extermination. Hitler emerges from prison with a new vision for his future. Instead of seizing power by force...
3: He figured out that he had to become a politician and run in elections and have people running in elections, just like anybody else.
1: His political ascent doesn't happen right away. But in the 1932 elections, the Nazis become the largest party in parliament. Not long after, Hitler is appointed chancellor. And not long after that, he becomes dictator. Range says, when you look at the years before that, Hitler's rise, you can see it was not inevitable. There were so many times things could have gone a different way.
3: From personal scandals to political missteps to party schisms, he came close to going off the rails at least half a dozen times. And each time, Hitler seemed to dodge a bullet at the last second. So
1: he rises to power and we know what happens next. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at our email address, at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. We are listening, and we love to hear from you. Thank you to Thomas Weber for speaking with us for this episode. He's the author of the book Becoming Hitler. Thanks also to Peter Ross Range, who you heard in this episode. He's the author of 1924, The Year That Made Hitler. We also read David King's book, The Trial of Adolf Hitler, in researching this episode. It is a great resource if you want to learn more about this story. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder, sound designed by Bill Moss, and story edited by Jennifer Gorin. History This Week is also produced by Ben Dickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn and Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts.